0: All right, page 8 and our series, When You Have to Choose. It says Session 2 at the top, but this is our third week. So we took a couple of weeks to do the first seven pages, and uh, we're not in a particular hurry with uh, this series because uh, we won't start another outreach series that we invite the community to until we get the edition uh, put on here, and that'll be, Lord willing, later this year. So we have a, a good amount of time with this and uh, whatever else we need to do in the meantime. So session 2, page 8, and we say at the top there, begin with the end in mind. As we think about the decisions that we have to make, both large and small, one of the foundational things that each of us has to do is to determine what is my purpose. And having determined what my purpose is, then I can back off from the purpose to see how this particular issue with which I'm confronted, this decision that I need to make, big or small, whether that fits into advancing that purpose. So if you're going to make decisions confidently, and if you're going to make them in line with the will of God, it is essential that you know your purpose. Knowing your purpose will help you evaluate a particular issue at hand for its value in advancing toward the the purpose it will allow you to prioritize things that are of lesser importance or perhaps no importance those are value laden terms i just used right no importance well how do you know if it's important or not important well it's only as you measure it against judge it against a purpose and so this idea then of beginning with the end in mind, always having at the forefront of our minds the purpose for which we are here and toward which we make our decisions is absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential, but it's also seldom done. The truth of the matter is most of us and most people live our lives without thinking consciously about why we're here, what we're supposed to be accomplishing and how our decision making fits into that most of us just go through life i mean you think about you know your life and i think about my life and you think about how you've just come into it and you've just gotten into the flow of it and you just start going and everybody's going And it's almost like you come into life and there's just this horde of people kind of moving and you have this entry ramp and you get into the entry ramp of life and now you merge into the flow and now we're all going with the flow and we're all going this direction. But nobody has stopped to ask, where are we going? And why are we going in this particular direction? Very few of us take the time to step back and, and stop, get on an exit ramp, get off of that flow of traffic to then just take some time to say, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? Is this thing moving in the right direction? Is the direction that pretty much everybody else is going, is that really what I'm supposed to be doing? And if we don't take that time to step back and reflect, then we just get into the routine. And that's why you ask most people, so what is your purpose? If they give you anything, it'll be some vague thing. I mean, You ask most people, they don't know. How do I know? Because I've done this. Now this is my unscientific survey, but I just, over the years, when I was working a real job, making an honest living, and I was doing my computer job, I would ask people that. It was part of my witness. So, you know, what's the meaning of life? People at work hated, just hated me for asking stuff like that. But you know, really, why? Are, what are we here? What are you, and it was oh you know, what, dude? I'm just trying to get my project done. Okay, I'm, uh, okay, I'm just trying to pay the mortgage. I'm just trying to, and nobody's thinking about those those questions. You ask Christian people, so why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? We will mumble out some churchy thing. So we'll say, you yeah, Glorify God. Ding, 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 ding. You know, you say glorify God, you've got a 50% shot. Right? So we'll just say something churchy. Okay, that's all true. In fact, we're going to see that. But then what does that mean? And how do my decisions fit into that? And so absent that, whether Christian or non-Christian, having stepped back to think about it, well, then we're just in the flow and we develop these habits and we don't think about the habits, we just do them. And we assume since we haven't committed any crimes and nobody's getting hurt, <laughs> you know, everybody it seems to be going okay, then it, it must be okay. And so we just develop these habits and do things just cause. I mean, think about your work life. If you work outside the home, if you're inside the home, you work harder than outside the home. That's why I always say that if you work outside the home, I don't say to I never say to a woman, "Do you work?" I did that once, I recovered 3 days later. <laughs> and so But you know, if you work outside the home, you work for a company and you just you, know, you get the job there and they say, "Okay, here's your position, here's what you do, this is the way it's done." But in most companies it's been years since anybody stepped back and said, "Why do we do it that way?" So you just fill out the form. The form might be, now I'm showing my age. Everything's electronic and digitized now. But you know, back in the day it was the form and it was in triplicate or quadruple, and the chartreuse copy goes over here, and you know, and, and why do we have all this going on? Why do we have all these people doing this? And one reason, nobody really wants to ask why we do it this way. One reason is is because it may endanger somebody's job. Because the truth is there may be a much better way to do that thing. That doesn't require us to have five people, right? But it applies to work. we just do it. And uh, it applies to, to life. I heard this story, uh, this apocryphal story some years ago, where a young lady, newly married, you know cooking for her husband, you know as a new thing, and uh, she's doing what she had learned to do. and uh, she found that her husband... Enjoys a roast, and so she made roast a number of times early on in their marriage, and he noticed that every time she made roast, she cut off the end of the roast, put it in the pan, and then, and then cooked it. And so he saw her do this three or four times, and he finally says, why do you cut off the end of the roast? And she says, you know, I, my mom always did. I don't know, let me call her. So I called my mom, why do we cut off the end of the roast? And she says, uh, you know, I don't know, my mom, grandma always did it. I don't know, let me call her. So she calls Grandma she goes, why do we cut off the end of the roast? She goes, I don't know why you do it. I did it because I never had a pan big enough for the... (laughs) Right? So we got a lot of roast that's going to waste. And people do this kind of stuff, right? We just do it because we do it. And you think about what a tragedy that is. That to go through life and to not step back and to think about what is it I'm supposed to be doing. And how does what I'm doing fit fit into that? So what happens is then you have people who don't take time, just running in no particular direction, and here's what happens. Uh, They do that, they're just running in no particular direction, and or they're just waiting it out until they die or Jesus returns. So I'm just sort of biding my time the one thing I may have learned in Sunday school when I was a kid was if you're not saved you won't spend eternity in heaven so I wanna spend eternity in heaven therefore I should get saved therefore the Sunday school teacher or the Awana leader or my mom or my dad or somebody led me in a prayer and I got saved when I was six or eight or nine and now I'm saved and I still go to church I still show up at church I like church I like the people there they're nice people I you know, I learn stuff, I want, to live a, I want to live a good life. But in terms of what my purpose is, my purpose is to wait to get to heaven. That's my purpose. To wait it out. So some of you have heard me say that for many of us, life is just one big Bill Naps. Right? And you know what I mean, right? Bill Naps, now defunct, much to my chagrin, by the way. I was all, my wife and I used to take Laney and Annie in there, and they, the girls, loved it. we still sometimes say, oh, we miss Bill Naps. We passed by the place on King and Allen. Oh, we miss Bill Naps. We used to go there. We were always the youngest people in there, right? And that's why Bill Naps came to be known as God's waiting room because there were always older folks there just kind of, you know, waiting until Jesus comes or it's, it's their time. And that's why I say for many people, Life is just one bill and a half, so we're just waiting it out. And so I think I beat that. I think you understand that that's a tragic thing. And it's a tragic thing especially for Christian people who have been called to lofty, majestic things in the here and now, not just the run-of-the-mill, go-with-the-flow stuff. So in order for us to make our decisions big and small, we need to see how those fit into the overall purpose, but that assumes we've asked the question, what is the purpose, and and that we know the answer. So page 8, begin with the end in mind. That's not original with me, as some of you will recognize. That was one of the seven habits of highly effective people. From Stephen Covey, Covey, begin with the end in mind. And he gives a golf illustration to show the value of, of doing that. Uh, i 'm not a good golfer. I golf maybe four times a year. I golf twice when we were at family camp. I use the term golf loosely. I was out there with golfers on a golf course and uh, i 'm going to golf again this this week. so in a given year, if I golf five times that 's a lot and i 'm not any good. But I do understand this illustration. Those of you that are golfers certainly will, and those of you who are not I hope you'll follow you got you know 18 holes and if you're a really good golfer you begin with the end in mind that before you before you start you actually have analyzed the course guys who are serious about it and they've analyzed the course at the beginning to identify those holes that are their birdie holes this is a hole where I can get a birdie where I can go under par and on those birdie holes they then look at the way those par 5s usually maybe an easier par four laid out, and they see if I'm going to get, that, get the ball in that hole on number five, in one under the required time, then I'm going to need to back off in my penultimate shot. I, love, I just love saying penultimate. That means your second to the last shot needs to be placed here. And the one before that would need to be placed here, which means the very first one needs to go. And so they back off from that. They begin with the end in mind and say, these are where the shots need to be placed in order for me to be positioned in order to get a birdie on that hole. That's beginning with the end in mind. And that's what this lesson number eight is about. Top of page eight. The necessity of knowing where you're going is underscored in this famous exchange between Alice and the cat in Alice in Wonderland. Alice says, will you please... Tell me which way I ought to go from here. The cat says that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. I don't much care where. Well, then it doesn't matter which way you go. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation, oh, you're sure to do that if you only walk long enough. You'll get somewhere. But are you going to get anywhere in particular? And it really doesn't matter which route you take, and it really doesn't matter which decision you make. If you don't have the end in mind, the destination in mind. And for many, life is one long walk, actually run toward nowhere in particular. And for the few who have a destination in mind, it's often not the goal provided by God in Scripture. So ask yourself, as I must ask myself, where are you going? What are you trying to achieve? What is your purpose? Proper decision-making begins with a clear understanding of our mission. Then and only then can we make decisions that are consistent with God's revealed will for us. So what I'd like to do then in in this lesson, including at the bottom of page 8, it alludes to the appendix. We'll probably take a look at the appendix because, as I say, we've got time. For us to have a thorough understanding of why God has us here, He's put us, us collectively on mission and then so that we can see that clearly and then begin to back off from that to evaluate our decisions in terms of their value for the mission. So what is the end? Middle of page 8. Well the purpose of man on this earth is confusing to some. It's one of the three big questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And God answers that question, the purpose of man. Why am I here? this uh, this way whether then you eat or drink whatever you do do all to the glory of god so if i ask you now all right you many of us know that verse many of us memorize that verse it's a marvelous verse but if i ask you just to yourself to just define in your own mind what does to bring glory to god mean we would get various answers and many of them would fall into this category I bring glory to God as long as what I do does not involve sin. As long as I haven't broken His law, as long as I haven't violated something He says not to do, then it's okay for me to do. So the way I make my decisions is I avoid any of the stuff that God has said don't do. Well, certainly that's that's true. God says don't do something, you don't do it, okay? But it would, in context, it is most definitely more than that. Now I say in context, what is the context of 1 Corinthians 10, 31? Well, you notice how that's written. It, it will give you a clue when it says whether then you eat or drink. So that verse with the then, some translations say therefore, the King James says, whether, therefore, I think, both. But in all of that, then, therefore, whether, therefore, that's all drawing an inference from what's been said before. This is a conclusion. All right, then, therefore, do this. Whether you eat, drink, whatever, do it all to the glory of God. So in order for me to know what that verse means, i got to know what the stuff was before. So what is the stuff before and you actually most of you know more about what precedes that verse than you than you may think. Verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 10 is the end of a section. It's the concluding verse of a section that goes all the way back to chapter 8 and verse 1. So where how does chapter 8 fit in chapter 8 chapter 9 chapter 10 such that we conclude with, all right then, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. How did we wind up at verse 31? Starting in chapter 8. Here's how. Chapter 8 and verse 1 says now about food that has been sacrificed to idols. That's how it starts. So 1 Corinthians 8.1 now, about food that's been sacrificed to idols. Now, you see a little bit of the connection already between 1 Corinthians 10.31 and 1 Corinthians 8.1. 10.31 says whether you eat or drink or whatever. And chapter 8 and verse 1 starts now about this food. And then you're going to have a discussion about whether or not you should eat this food. Now, why are we having a discussion about whether we should eat this food? I just want to take a minute to go back then. Back from 1 Corinthians 10.31 to where that whole discussion begins, chapter 8 and verse 1. But let's just real quickly put that into a much larger context, okay? When 1 Corinthians 8.1 starts with, now about food that has been sacrificed to idols, those first couple of words, now about, are important. Because if you've read through 1 Corinthians, you will have seen, now about, previously. Chapter 7 and verse 1 starts this way. Now about the matters you wrote about. Now about the matters you wrote about. So, chapter 7 and verse 1, Paul, who wrote First Corinthians, is apparently responding to some people who wrote to him about some stuff. Now about those things you wrote to me about, chapter 7 and verse 1. And then he starts to talk about divorce and remarriage in chapter 7. Then he comes to chapter 8 and says, now about this. This is apparently another matter about which they had written. Then you get to chapter 12 and verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. Apparently another matter about which they had written. So here's Paul. He gets this letter from the church at Corinth saying, This is my version. None of us have this letter. We can only determine the contents of their letter based on his answer. But here's my the way it was. Dear Paul, we're a wreck. Because we're clueless, will you give us a clue about things like divorce, marriage, remarriage? The reason we're a mess about divorce and marriage and remarriage is because we're in Corinth. And Corinth is a pagan city. Paul knows all this. He was there, he established the church. It's a pagan city. Some of our people have come to Jesus, some of the spouses have not. Some of us think we ought to divorce those spouses if they're not Christians, some of us think we should stay married. We don't know. Please help us. And we're also a pagan city that has a pagan temple central to its architecture. Where there's temple prostitution and worship of the pagan gods and goddesses, and where sacrifices are made to these pagan gods and goddesses. And we participated in those. And now some of us, we've come to Jesus and we we don't go to the temple, but we really like the good deal we used to get on the meat. Because after they're done with the meat, they sell it, and it's cheap. It's actually really good. So is it okay for us to eat the meat, not offer the sacrifice, just eat the meat from a sacrifice that's been offered? Is that okay? Please help us. And so Paul says, and begins in chapter 8, now about that, and then goes on to answer that. And then another thing. You know, we know that you are variously gifted. When you were with us, Paul, You demonstrated a number of gifts, including the ability to prophesy and speak on behalf of the Lord and write in an authoritative manner His words. And so, what about gifts for us? What gifts do we have and how are they supposed to be exercised? Will you help us with that? So from chapter 7 all the way to the end, Paul's dealing with stuff they wrote to him about. Now the first six chapters, he's not dealing with stuff that they wrote to him about. He's dealing with things that some people told him about. And how do I know that? Because in chapter 1 and verse 10 or 11, he says, Some from the household of Chloe. Anybody got chapter 1? Is it 10 or 11? It's 11, okay. Okay. So chapter 1, verse 11, Some from Chloe's household have told me that there are quarrels and divisions among you. And so he got information from some people from Chloe's household. We don't know who Chloe is, but they told Paul, We've got problems. We've got divisions and factions. We need help. He had two sources of information, the snitches at Chloe's house, And the letter he got from somebody saying we need these things, both of those. And in chapters 1 through 6, it is devoted to these divisions that they have. They're going to court, chapter 6. They're tolerating gross sin, chapter 5, that is not even named among the pagans, let alone should it be in the church. So you're going to have to remove this person from your fellowship because a little leaven leavens the entire lump, he says. Some say I'm of Peter, some say I'm of Paul. So here's Paul, this big discussion about these problems, and in the midst of that, one of the problems was something that he had been written to about regarding this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And it starts in chapter 8, and it goes to the end of chapter 10. Now, what does he say about it? In chapters 8, 9, and 10, this is the gist of what he says. He says, Meat... Is just that. It's just meat. And idols are actually dumb and mute. They really can't do anything. So it's just meat. Have at it on the meat. Except there's another thing for you to consider. I'm telling you that the idol is nothing, the meat is just meat. If that's all we had to consider, we'd be done with this discussion. But there's something else. Not everybody knows this. And for the sake of those who don't know this, you now have to plug in a very important principle, and that principle is your love for those people who don't know that. And so in chapter 8, doesn't he say that? You know, so he he tells them that you're, you're gonna have to your love is gonna to have to trump your knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So your love is gonna to have to trump what you know. You could, if you wanted, Corinthian believer, to whom I'm telling this, the idol's nothing, the meat is nothing, you now know it, you know that. You could now go to say to someone who doesn't have that knowledge, look, get with the program. That's the way it is. But you've got this weak person in the faith, new in the faith, they've come out of the pagan temple, and for them, when they see that meat, they're associating it with that. Your love for them means that you will not violate their conscience. Now, he goes through examples, chapter 9, of how he has to do that in his own life. There are things that he could do that are perfectly fine to do. But he chooses not to do them for the sake of other people and for the sake of the gospel. So, in his case, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he uses an Old Testament example, says that the ox that treads out the grain is worthy of compensation. Now, there he's talking about people who preach the gospel are to, this is his phrase, should live of the gospel. So it is fine to pay ministers. Contrary to what some denominations say, it's fine to pay ministers. That's what he's saying there. But in some cases, I have determined I'm not going to accept pay. He says that in chapter 9. And he uses this language, but we did not use this right. We have a right to it, but we've determined not to do it so that something larger could be achieved. He says I don't take a wife along with me on my travels. He says Peter does and Barnabas does but I don't. It's a perfectly fine thing to do, but I did not use this right. This is all chapter 9. So that I could advance, so that I could advance further the gospel. So he's giving examples of things that it is perfectly fine to do that you give up for a larger reason. And he summarizes this when he gets to chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. Chapter 10, 23, and 24. In chapter 10, 23, and 24, it says in quotation marks. If you're looking at it, you'll see quotation marks. All things are lawful. Quotes. That means he's quoting somebody. All things are lawful. And who's he quoting? He's quoting the Corinthians. And what are they saying? Dude, you're telling us to restrict our liberty. Because that is what he's doing. You have liberty to do things. But love dictates and our higher purpose dictates that sometimes you restrict that liberty for the sake of those you love in that higher purpose. So I'm supposed to restrict my liberty. All things are lawful. I'm supposed to be able to do So he quotes them, all things are lawful. But then he says, but not all things are beneficial. He repeats it, all things are lawful. But I will not be controlled by anything. There's nothing that I can't give up for the sake of the gospel. Nothing. Says Paul. In the middle of that whole discussion, famously... Chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all men means save some. You guys remember that? To those under the law, I became like one under the law. To those without the law, I became... It's in the context of, I am willing to give stuff up. I'm willing to come outside my comfort zone for the sake of people that I love and the purpose that I serve. Now, you put it all in that context, and now you come to verse 31. So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. What Paul has described from chapters 8, 9, and 10 is what it looks like to make decisions to the glory of God. How so? Here's what the glory of God is. The glory of God is the display of His character. The glory of God is the display of his character. And what Paul has described in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is how he goes about displaying the character of God in his interactions with other people as he advances the gospel. So what's the character of God? The glory of God is the display of his character. What is God's character comprised of? Well, his character is all of his character qualities, his attributes. Chief among those is God is love. So if I'm going to bring glory to God, I have to be a person who is governed by the character quality of love for other people, not my rights. Wow. He's down, Paul is downright un-American. Because baby, rights come first. Don't you know that? And that's what we think, isn't it? My rights are what matter most. And Paul says, my rights aren't what matter most. And you know, I'm really thankful, says Paul, that Jesus' rights were not what mattered most to him. Because by rights, where should Jesus have been 2,000 years ago? Well, he has the right to just stay in heaven and judge all of us summarily. But his love dictated that he lay aside his rights. That's precisely what Philippians 2 teaches. Precisely. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who? Though he were God. Thought it not, King James, robbery to be equal with God, but nonetheless laid aside his deity, laid aside his rights, the prerogatives, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So if Jesus exercises his rights, we ain't saved. And Paul says, I've laid aside my rights, and if you're going to glorify God which is the display of his character and chief among his character qualities is love then that means you're going to lay aside your rights for the sake of other people and for the sake of God and the gospel. So now what's my purpose? Well whether then you eat, drink or whatever you do to all to the glory of God. Now the glory of God is more than just anything that is illicit. Stay away from it. Anything that God has forbidden, just don't do that. That's all true. <laughs> but it's much more than that it's making my decisions in terms of whether or not they display the character of God now if we did that it would transform every relationship we have wouldn't it it would transform our home relationships well, I mean, what are the quarrels and the fights and all the stuff we get into other than me saying It's your fault because you did this because you trampled on and I've got this prerogative and you're not, And right? At home, at church, you name it. So whether then you decide I am going to eat this meat or I am going to drink or whatever, it all has to be done with that in mind. Now, just step back and ask yourself, quietly, as I ask myself, is that the way I make my decisions? My ultimate purpose is to display the character of God. And the character of God is His love and His mercy and His forgiveness and His faithfulness. And it's all of this list that we could make that God has revealed about Himself. It's all of those things. That's what I'm supposed to be displaying. And in all of my choices, whether eat, drink, or any other choice, It needs to be made in light of that. We ask ourselves, is that the way I make my choices? You know, uh, I told you we're going to talk about adoption over the next few months, some of the opportunities. You know, (laughs) for Rosaria Butterfield, I should have named the book that I mentioned, First Hour. The title of that book is The secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. The secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. But for her to come to Jesus, I mean, just 10 years ago, and for her to bring four kids into her home, two of whom were teenagers, I mean, that's a transformation, isn't it? And that's saying I'm willing to give it up, and I'm willing to give up my rights for the sake of somebody else. That's displaying the character of God. That's an example of that. I'm not saying, nor are we going to say in the months ahead, you know, everybody's got to do that. If you don't everybody adopt somebody or you get kicked out of the church, and, you know. <laughs> of course not. Many of us are not even in a position to do that in terms of age and so on. But we want to put that out in front. And as we put that out in front, I'm simply saying that acts like that are Christian activities because they lay aside what's best for me and my comfort zone for the benefit of somebody else, which is precisely what Jesus does. So whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, that's the way we all need to think about that. And I said glory is the display of God's character. How do I know this? Well, Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, that is in its essence what sin is. It's falling short. It's failure to live up to the character, the glory of God in the way I think, in the way I talk, and in the way I act. So God's glory is the display of His character. His character is His attributes and I have to ask myself and you have to ask yourself when I make my decisions do I make them based upon displaying chiefly the love of Christ but all of his other attributes as well then you look at page 8 Isaiah 43 everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory whom I have formed even whom I have made so we were made for God's glory everything is about His glory Romans 11.36, From Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him. Be the glory forever. The Westminster Catechism, its very first question, that's what a catechism is, right? A, a teaching tool in question and answer format. Question one of the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? And what is the answer? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy Him forever. Our life on this earth is to be consumed with the pursuit of God through knowledge of Him and through bringing honor to His name through our lives. And to that end, God has given us a mission. So everything has the umbrella of God's glory over it. And now God in His Word says, as you display my character, you're going to display my character as you carry out a mission that I've assigned to you. And we're going to look at that mission then beginning next week, okay? So let's ask the Lord to grant us safety this week, come back next, and we will take one paragraph at a time until Jesus returns or, or you die in your seats, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could think about your word and think about these issues because They are truth, and because truth matters on Monday. Lord, your truth does not just matter in this room on the Lord's day. Your truth matters when we go home in our cars. It matters tomorrow and each moment of every day. So, Lord, help us to think about the practical import of what it means to be people who have been called to declare your praises, to bring glory to your name. Help us to ponder what we have learned. Help us, Lord, to think about how it then fits into our circumstances. And then, in turn, help us to live in a way that honors and pleases you. Lord, we ask you, grant us safety this week and bring us back together next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.